1: Welcome to the table. I'm Daryl Bach, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary, and my guest is Gerald McDermott, who is Anglican Chair of Divinity at Beeson Divinity School in Birmingham, Alabama. So, welcome, uh, Gerald Jerry. Well, how, Jerry, ha, just okay, me Jerry, Jerry. and uh, uh, got his PhD from the University of Iowa. In what area? In
2: religion. In religion. Uh, back in the day, the PhD program. I uh, Had a major and a minor, and my major was history of Christianity. Mm-hmm. My minor was Asian religions.
1: Huh. Oh wow. Well, that, that means I might have to invite you back to talk about that topic. But oh, anyway, well, I'd be happy to. Uh, but uh, and so uh, Jerry's the editor of a book which I have here called "The New Christian Zionism: Fresh Perspectives on Israel and the Land." And it's a multi-volume edition and has several contributors. It actually is the papers that were presented at a conference at Georgetown University a couple of years ago. And uh, so how did, a, how did a good Anglican like you get interested in this topic?
2: Well, I used to be a supersessionist, and mm-hmm. I imagine your audience knows what that word means. Yeah, the
1: idea that, that, that uh, the church in, in a major way, shape, or form, and in some way has replaced Israel in the plan of God. Right. Okay. And
2: 1992, I took my first of 14 trips to Israel, ah. and essentially, and I was answering the same question at lunch today, by going to Israel and looking around and talking to people, both Arabs and Jews and Druze and other sorts of folks, uh, uh, Christians and Jews and Muslims, I started to see things on the ground that were very different, not only from what I read in the newspapers, but also very different from the theology that I had.
1: Hmm. Hmm. And so that struck your interest, and years later you organized this conference that we had at Georgetown?
2: Yeah, I felt... That this is a compelling theological problem mm-hmm. and that there's gross misunderstanding theologically. And I wanted to put on an academic conference, and I invited um, um, you, Daryl, to it. I wanted you there uh, to help try to correct some of the widespread theological misunderstanding. Hmm. Hmm. and i wanted you know we intended from day 1 that this would become a book right and you know that when i invited you and uh, we were very grateful after the conference that eventually we landed a contract with ivp academic university mm-hmm. press academic
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, I enjoyed the experience very much. You gave me a very unique assignment at that conference because I came without a paper. I had to listen to all the papers Mm -hmm. and construct a concluding set of remarks based upon what I had just heard. Which was probably one of the greatest challenges I've ever had in attending mm-hmm. a conference, but mm-hmm. it was a great experience because it was a wonderful conference. A lot of very capable people speaking from a variety of angles. It wasn't just theology, there were people who had historical background there, there were people of cultural, uh, out of a cultural context who were speaking into it. So it was a very well planned and diverse conference in terms of the way in which the question was tackled and so you get a title the new christian zionism and then the next thing someone's going to ask is what in the world is that um, right
2: well it's zionism because it is devoted to the idea that the return of the Jews to the land from countries all around the world in the last 150 years is a God thing mm-hmm. and is a good thing. Actually, Zionism by itself doesn't mean God. Mm-hmm. It just means it's a good thing mm-hmm. that, that we support. Christian Zionism, of course, is there are Christian theological reasons for, for believing that this is a God thing and not just a, a nationalistic process and event, and new because it's much broader than just the dispensationalist uh, Christian Zionism, for which I am very grateful. Mm -hmm. We we are standing in some sense on your shoulders, and yet we are trying to demonstrate that Christian Zionism is 2,000 years old. It didn't start Mm -hmm. with with the rise of dispensationalism dispensationalism over over in England and here uh, in the mid-19th century.
1: Right. And I like to say when you're talking about the role of Israel in scripture, you're talking about a biblical theological position as opposed to a specific theological traditions position.
2: Right. And it's also new because we're we are eschatologically agnostic. That is, we don't take a position on what's gonna happen when. Mm-hmm. We believe there's more of sacred history that will unfold, mm-hmm. but we don't and we probably disagree amongst us. Mm-hmm. As to what's going to happen and when and whether we even know much about that. right? But so that's one other new thing. Uh, Plus, another new thing about this new Christian Zionism is that we are willing to criticize the state of Israel. Mm -hmm. Not that that previous Christian Zionists have not uh, entirely, but um, we don't think it's a perfect state. And for that matter, we don't think any country in the world is a perfect state. (laughs) Uh, We're all worthy of criticism. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, while we say that with uh, – on the one hand, Mm -hmm. as Tevya and and Fiddler did, uh, on the other hand, we believe that Israel is a light in the terrible darkness of the Middle East and, and in fact – Israel is a light to the nations even today in so many ways, completely apart from religious.
1: So the roots, and we've discussed this on other podcasts with other guests, about, you know, the program of God tied to covenantal commitments <clears throat> that God has made that are a reflection of his faithfulness in texts like, you know, Genesis twelve and the Abrahamic covenant, etc. are in play here and run through through the text and there and there's a middle portion of the book really that deals with the different uh, contributions of different portions of scripture to this theme why don't you overview kind of where the book takes us and then I want to look particularly at the introduction and conclusion of the book and talk with you about that sure
2: so. sure sure thanks Daryl yeah
1: um
2: so there's an introduction in which we deal with a number of of the immediate questions that always come up when you mention Zionism and particularly Christian Zionism and and you'll talk about them in a minute Then part one is theology and history. Chapter one is a history of supersessionism, which goes back to the early church. Uh, chapter two is a history of christian zionism which shows that it is two thousand years old it's not just 150 years old uh, christian zionism um, part two is theology in the bible and this really is the heart of the book these are new testament scholars first biblical hermeneutics craig blazing great new testament scholar uh, whom this audience probably knows of and he's probably been on your show um uh, he talks about how do we understand the relationship between Old and New Testament. Mm-hmm. Then we've got a Matthew scholar um, mm-hmm. on uh, the Gospel of, on Zionism in the Gospel of Matthew, mm-hmm. and then we've got a New Testament scholar on Zionism in Luke Acts. Mm-hmm. Then we've got a New Testament scholar on Zionism in Paul. So these four chapters argue the thesis that the New Testament is thoroughly Zionist, and the reason why we haven't seen that at least. Most of the academy and most of the churches have not seen it. Is because we've been trained not to see it.
1: Yeah, I think that's fair. I've I've done similar chapters to the one on Luke Acts for other publications, and what we, uh, what I'm constantly telling people is, is that what you get oftentimes is a set of passages where it's clear the church has taken up the responsibility of the story of redemption from Israel in this current era, but that doesn't mean that that Gentile inclusion and that fulfillment means the exclusion of Israel in the program and plan of God. And Luke Acts in particular has a series of passages, I call them the until passages, that um, that show that Israel still has a future in the program of God. These are, these are texts like, um, uh, your house is desolate until you say, blessed is he who calls on the name of the Lord, which anticipates a resurrection. That's in Luke 13, or the disciples having been in the ultimate uh, Old Testament and the New Era class with the 40 days they spent with Jesus. uh, respond with, with, after those 40 days by asking Jesus the question, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? So nothing that he's told them has disabused them of that idea, and nothing in his answer disabuses them of that a- a- idea either. He simply says, not you to know the times and the seasons. He doesn't say, uh, well, I'll tell you what, we need to re-enroll in Eschatology 101 and go from there. Uh, and then the passage in Acts 3, where Peter says um, uh, that the way to know what's coming with the Lord's return is to read your Hebrew Scriptures, and that they tell you the story, has, uh, has the apostle pointing them back to these earlier texts as the completion of the promise.
2: And in that passage, Peter says, Excuse me. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, go ahead. Uh, he refers to the apokatastasis that yes, is to come. Absolutely. Now, that is the Greek word. Mm-hmm that's variously translated in English translations that is the same Greek word that is used in all the Old Testament passages of the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament that the early church was using and that Paul was using, and Peter probably, Mm -hmm. uh, for the return of Jews to the land of Israel and restoration of the kingdom of Israel. Same word. And Peter, so Peter shows that he is still... Looking forward to something to come in the future in the particular land of Israel with the particular people of Israel.
1: Yeah, that's right. And 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 I like to tell people that the Acts three speech actually shows you how Peter processed that conversation earlier in Acts one when they asked the original question, "Is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel?" And Jesus' answer is, "Not you to know the times and the seasons, but this is your assignment in the meantime: take the gospel into all the world." So that restoration idea was still there with him. Mm-hmm. Him, being taught and preached in Acts chapter three, as the church was in the process of you know carrying out what it is that Jesus had asked mm-hmm. them to do, so very important section obviously of the book. Craig uh, Blazing is uh, does do a lot of careful work in New Testament. He's also uh, a systematic theologian who's written in the area of dispensationalism in a in a significant and full way, and has kind of this dual capability that. Um, very few people sometimes have, so it's uh, mm-hmm. he's uh, a very talented writer, and that is an important chapter in the book. Mm-hmm.
2: So, part three is called "Theology and Its Implications." In uh, Mark Tooley, who's the president of the IRD, the Institute for Religion and, and Democracy, does a chapter on theology in the churches, how mainline Protestants have dealt with Zionism and anti-Zionism. Uh, then Robert Benny has a marvelous chapter on Reinhold Niebuhr, mm-hmm. who is a Christian Zionist. Hmm. Great surprise. Most Niebuhr fans and, their, and, and Niebuhr fans are legions, including uh, Barack Obama and Jimmy Carter. <laughs> there you go. Have no idea, uh-huh. I'm sure, yeah. that Reinhold Niebuhr was a Christian Zionist. Hmm. Uh, And then Robert Nicholson has a very important chapter on theology and the law. Does the modern state of Israel violate its call to justice in the covenant by its relationship to international law? And basically, he's a legal scholar, and he does a very careful job in there showing that no, Israel is not violating international law, as is often alleged in the media and elsewhere. And we'll come back to that. Then chapter 10 is by Shadi Kalou. Shadi Kalou lives in the land. Mm-hmm. He's not a Jew. He's a leader of, of the Aramaean community, uh, still speaking Aramaic. Um, so he's what the rest of the world would call a Palestinian, although he says, strictly speaking, I'm not a Palestinian. Mm-hmm. Uh, they came long after we were there. <laughs> <laughs> um and he basically talks about what it's like to live as a religious minority in the Jewish state. Hmm. And he says, it's wonderful. Hmm. And he said, I, I'm a Christian, and this wonderful state of Israel um, is the only country in the Middle East where I can raise my children as Christians hmm. in freedom and freely practice my faith. Then the last part is theology in the future. Daryl Bach has a wonderful chapter concluding things and talking about Where Christian Zionists ought to go from there, and I hope that Daryl, you say a few things about that. I will, and then I have uh, some concluding implications and propositions about the implicate for Christian theology. What sorts of things? um, What sort of direction should Christian theology specifically go in if these things are true?
1: Okay. So so it's a it's a book that covers both theology and the current status of things, if you will. It it it's pretty comprehensive and it, it and it's making a very, very important point that I think is underappreciated. So it's making several of them, but one of the important points, and I think this is a good place to start with your introductory chapter, so it's a transitioning as well, is this is a group that's broader than dispensationalism and part of the point that you're making is is that Christians who have been who have recognized the role of Israel in Scripture have been around for a long time and come in many stripes, and uh, and and so uh, talk about the uh, t- we didn't talk about this when we went through the authors but the authors all come from a variety of backgrounds themselves they aren't you know as you made the point they aren't just dispensationalists you're an Anglican mm-hmm.
2: uh, um, Bob still, Benny's a Lutheran. Mm-hmm. Um, Mark Thule is a Methodist. Uh, Robert Nicholson is a Baptist. Uh, Shali, you know, Shadi Kalul is a um, Aramaean Orthodox, mm-hmm. I believe. Um, Mark Kinzer is a messianic. Uh, yeah. a messianic <laughs> yeah. Jew. David Rudolph is too. Yep. Um, so you know, we come from a variety of of. Uh, of denominations and religious traditions.
1: Yeah. So again, the point being that this understanding of scripture is is one that is broad ranging in terms of the background. And another point that you make that's similar it's it's a different point, but it's a similar kind of historical point is is that Zionism itself is not a recent thing either. That we're not dealing with with a movement that comes out of the nineteenth century as it's often portrayed. But Zionism itself is also uh, significantly older, um, and 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 you make a variety of points here, but I'll, I'll let you develop it. Uh, so, in in what sense has Zionism had, you know, a long life? Well, I mean, it started two
2: thousand years ago. Uh, well, Zionism, of course, started more than two thousand years ago in the Old Testament with with, with uh, the Old Testament prophets, um, but just after the New Testament. You have early Christian leaders, even leaders who are starting to say the church is the new Israel wrongly, mm-hmm. nevertheless say that there's going to be a restoration of Israel in the future and Jerusalem's going to be the future center of the world in the new heavens and the new earth. Yeah. So people like Justin Martyr, who right. is in many ways the arch supersessionist at the beginning, started the ball rolling with, with serious theological supersessionism, um, nevertheless – Taught that there will be a future kingdom of Israel in the land of Israel, so the land of Israel and the city of Jerusalem is still theologically
1: significant yeah and in fact the interesting thing about that is is that probably for the first few centuries of the early church most anyone who was a theologian had a physical view of the kingdom that looked to a future that involved the nation of Israel and the city of Jerusalem in it so uh, mm-hmm. so this is not a uh, 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 what do I want to call it? An innovation in theology yes. that's yes. late. It's actually much, much earlier. There's plenty of Christian Zionism up until the fourth
2: century. Mm-hmm. Now in the fourth century, when Constantine comes and the empire becomes officially Christian, uh, Christianity is tolerated first, and then later under Justinian, it's mandated. Um, then and then later in the century you get the theology of Augustine who says that the millennium is simply a symbol for the current reign of Christ through through the church mm-hmm. through the catholic church and so you you do have christian zionists but they but they go pretty much underground mm-hmm. through the middle ages and then christian zionism gets resurrected in a big way in the 16th century, interesting, law, three centuries before the 19th century, in the mm-hmm. 16th century, mm-hmm. primarily um, because of the Reformation's emphasis on a plain sense reading of the Bible. In other words, mm-hmm. let's not hyper-spiritualize all these Old Testament promises and New Testament suggestions. Let's realize that God is a, is a God of the particular, not just the universal. Mm-hmm. God is a God of flesh, and bodies, and land, and not just bodiless spirits. So if we believe in the resurrection of the body for the individual, the Bible also talks about the resurrection of the land, so to speak, a renewed land. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this is particularly the Christians who and, and the theologians who particularly pick this up are the Puritans, starting in the 16th century. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's through Puritanism that that you get this theological revival of Christian Zionism in the 16th century, long before. 250 almost 300 years before the rise of, of dispensationalism
1: yep it's true and it's interesting that uh, what they're picking up on as you say is this language of Scripture which seems to suggest there's a physical dimension to salvation there's physical dimensions to the kingdom the kingdom is about this history it's not a it's not a two-planed history in which there's this spiritual thing going on in the midst of the physical it's fully integrated and the promises of Of God are kept to the people to whom those promises are originally given, even as Gentiles are coming in alongside uh, and are certainly blessed and have full participation in rights and what it is Christ has Mm -hmm. to offer. Mm -hmm. Their presence doesn't mean the nullification of another group of people to whom God made commitments. Yes.
2: and so you've got people like Jonathan Edwards, who was a post-millennialist, mm-hmm. just the opposite of a pre-millennialist. Mm-hmm. He believed in a literal millennium, but that Jesus was not going to come until after the end of this literal millennium. And he was a Christian Zionist. Mm. He said the Jews will return to the land. Mm. We know that. Mm. Uh, they're dispersed right now in the diaspora. And we know the Bible promises they will, so we know something great is going to happen in the land of Israel sometime in the future. We don't know when. Now, he was writing this in the 1740s, and of course, Jews didn't start returning to the land in big numbers until about the 1870s or so. So, But he knew it was coming. Hmm. So here, here is a post-millennialist, mm-hmm. a leading Christian Zionist, and you know the greatest American theologian. I would say one one of the five or six greatest theologians in the history of Christian thought was a Christian Zionist back in the 18th century.
1: Interesting. You know, we uh, we we moved quickly, so we got past this period when. The church and politics were so tightly wrapped together that it was hard to separate the kingdom from politically what was going on, which probably helped to contribute to the belief that the church was going to was the political and redemptive answer to things in the world. That mixture would could lead easily to that confusion, just as we have sometimes civil religion and gospel values that get mixed up in our own mm-hmm. reflections on society. So, uh, in one sense, it's not surprising that this happened, particularly. As Christianity got further and further away from its Jewish roots sociologically in that earlier period, and they lost touch with the with uh, the Jewish roots of what the church had been in the first few centuries.
2: Yes, and <clears throat> Jews emphasize this earth generally more than christians do and in fact many jews that i know are very critical of christians because they're so airy fairy super spiritual Mm -hmm. hyper spiritualizing everything and there's they have good reason for these criticisms Uh, because so much of, of the history of christian theology has so hyper spiritualized the 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 Old Testament promises, making everything uh, apply to the church, taking all of the material application out of the promises and and spiritualizing them all. So what you have is sort of a, dare I say it, Christian Gnosticism mm-hmm. that separates soul from body and almost denigrates the body as being unspiritual and a... Um, uh, Scandal of particularity is what's really going on now. That's a fancy term that uh, theologians have been using for the last fifty or sixty years, referring to the fact that uh, actually it goes back to the Enlightenment. It 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 um, the Enlightenment thought everything should be universal, and anything that was particular, any particular truth of history, could not have universal truth. Uh, so if there's a God, and of course, most of the Enlightenment thinkers did believe in God, that God must operate in the same way for all people at all times and in all places. And so any God who would operate in particular ways to particular peoples, like the God of the Jews, and only in particular times are revealing himself progressively through history instead of all uh, at the same time and in the same place, must not be the true God.
0: God is a genius storyteller. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Cat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform.
1: And so, we were in the middle of talking about what New Christian Zionism is, kind of introducing it to people, and we've gone through it's broader than dispensationalism, it's historical in the sense that it shows that Zionism is old; that Zionism is not just a new thing. And the next thing that you do in the introductory chapter is to talk about. Uh, the issue of legality and justice, which I think is probably one of the most misunderstood portions of this conversation that we can have, there are many attempts to suggest that Israel's presence uh, in in that area of the world is illegal, uh, going back to its uh, founding as a nation in in 1947 and 1948, and then also uh, in the discussion of. Uh, of uh, the war, uh, the Six Day War in uh, 1967, and then the discussion subsequently, and people sometimes will point to UN resolutions that make the same kinds of claims. And so your point here is that before we have a discussion about Israel and, and what it has the rights to, not just theologically, but even legally, there are legal reasons to respect Israel's right to exist as a nation so um, help us with that because I do think that's one of the most misunderstood parts of this conversation
2: right and let me deal very briefly and and tell uh, listeners and watchers uh, you know to go to the book from for for much more detail first of all uh, 1947 1948 often the allegation is that the Jews stole the land from the Arabs mm. not so uh, the United Nations, partitioned the land, and in a way that the Jews were very unhappy with the partition, but they swallowed hard and they said, we will accept it, uh, our, our our share of the land. And the Arabs did not. And the Arabs proceeded uh, all the surrounding Arab nations uh, on the day after uh, the Israeli state was established, attacked. And as a result of the war... Um, Uh, the state was secured. So they did not steal the land. In fact, the United Nations, in an internationally recognized uh, um, resolution, awarded a part of the land to the Jews, which the Jews accepted and the Arabs did not. Now secondly, um, uh, it is often alleged today that the so-called occupation of the West Bank uh, is illegal. And they refer, first and foremost, a resolution to, to UN Resolution 242 in 1967 after the conclusion of the October Six-Day War. Mm-hmm. What a lot of people don't realize, and a lot of the media never goes back to check, is that if you look at the resolution, it says, and, and as the authors of the resolution, one of whom, Arthur Goldberg, wrote a long piece about this, The resolution specifically says that Israel is to withdraw from territories, not the territories. And Arthur Goldberg wrote that we specifically omitted the word the because we recognized that that Israel would be committing suicide to withdraw from all the territories because it would not be able to defend itself. And that no final resolution of the borders should be established until there was face-to-face negotiation by the two parties and until the surrounding Arab nations who had attacked it in 1967, and they were the initiators, not the Jews, uh, not the Israelis, uh, recognized the the legitimacy of the state of Israel. And they never have done that. Now, Jordan has and Egypt has, but the surrounding states have not. Mm -hmm. And what a lot of... Uh, people don't realize is that Israel already gave back ninety percent of the land that it won in this defensive war in 1967. The whole Sinai Peninsula, mm-hmm. which now we know is incredibly mineral rich, mm-hmm. and and the other thing a lot of people don't don't realize is that the West Bank was seized illegally by Jordan in 1948 or uh, 1949. It might have been. At, uh, after the conclusion of, of um, the War of Independence for Israel, Jordan's take over the West Bank was universally condemned even by fellow Arab nations. Hmm. So they never had right to the land of the West Bank. Hmm. And, and by the way, they called it the West Bank. It was the West Bank of the Jordan of their territory. Mm-hmm. So that's not even the title. It uh, does not have international uh, legitimacy, or didn't have then, and now simply by the the, the universal use of the term has been accepted. Uh, so um, Israel is not violating international law. It didn't steal land in 1948, and it's not illegally operating territory. Oh, and the other thing that people don't realize is 1988 – uh, Jordan officially transferred control of the West Bank to the State of
1: Israel. Hmm. So, and and even if you go before uh, the founding of the official founding of the nation, 1947, in uh, 1948, in that period, um, you have the Balfour Declaration that comes before that that is, that um, opened up the possibility of of people coming to the land and and the opportunity they had to be there, et cetera. And all, and all these steps have, uh, have legal moves that are attached to them in the context of international law. Now, the dispute, of course, exists because some of the Arab states have not recognized some of these moves and have not acknowledged uh, the right of Israel to exist. I've spoken at a, at a conference called Christ at the Checkpoint, which is um, held in, in Bethlehem uh at Bethlehem Bible uh, college, and uh, they were very gracious to me. They wanted to hear uh, what dispensationalists had to say about, about Israel, and so I hmm. went in and talked about how I thought it, Israel had a right to the land, etc., and I, and I made the point that when it comes to justice, justice is a two-way street, that, hmm. um, that not only do you have to recognize the injustices that sometimes do come up because Israel's not perfect in the way she responds, but imagine if you were surrounded by a series of nations, many of whom don't think you have the right to exist. And and many of whom have espoused or support people who espoused your absolute removal and the analogy I like to make for Americans imagine if America was surrounded by Canadians and Mexicans whose commitment was that the United States should no longer exist and they would do anything they could in their power to make sure that it was removed that would probably make you pretty nervous and uh And so that's the situation Israel finds herself in as she deals with this. And so part of what I said to the mostly Palestinian audience that I was talking to is, the preoccupation that Israel has with security is a, is a justified preoccupation and uh, and the only way that you're going to work towards any kind of reconciliation or peace which is what this conference was supposed to be talking about is if both sides are willing to recognize the, the reality of the presence of the other and actually talk in nonviolent terms about how to how to how to live together um, so um, that's one of the more interesting hours of my life, actually. Uh, and I bet it was. Yeah. Um, but, but I feel like this legal dimension is one of the things that's assumed in these conversations and doesn't exist. And it doesn't mean that there aren't real issues to discuss between the parties. Um, I, I often joke about when I go to Israel, I hear the same stories, and people are wearing black hats and white hats. The only difference is what side of the wall am I on as to who's. Who's got wearing the white hat and who's wearing the black black hat? Yeah. There are, yeah. there are all kinds of anecdotes about things that were done in each direction that that would give a Christian pause. Yeah. So, uh, so I think this legal dimension is important. You not only discuss it in the introduction, you also discuss it in the conclusion, and and those details plus the history behind them is very very important. One of the things that I said in my concluding remarks yeah. is is that whenever this issue gets discussed. Making people familiar with what this history is is actually an important part of the conversation to prevent the presumption presumptions about how injustice is working. In, in particular mm-hmm. cases. Another thing that you highlight is the idea uh, that this is uh, – from an ethnic standpoint it's not racism, that there that there is another backdrop to this that's important in terms of the religious identity uh, of Israel, which is an interesting question in itself because if you go to Israel you find people who are very secular Israelis as well as people who are very religious. Israelis. it's a very orthodox. I uh, have in mind there. So you meet this range that you've alluded to in your own visits. Uh, talk a little bit about that. Uh,
2: yeah, I tell people who hear uh, the about the 1975 UN resolution condemning uh, Zionism as racism, which implied that Israel as a Jewish state was a racist state because it declares itself a religious Jewish state, which is, A, sort of laughable when you look at all the uh, explicitly Muslim states in the world today, and Mm -hmm. we don't accuse them of being racist. And, B, it's laughable if you go to Israel and you see black um, soldiers in the IDF and white soldiers in the IDF, IDF is the Israeli Defense Force, Mm -hmm. and brown soldiers in the IDF, Mm -hmm. uh, you see people of all different colors and all different races who are Jews. Mm -hmm. There are Chinese Jews, there are African Jews, there are Middle Eastern, you know, North African Jews, who who tend to be more, they're certainly not white. And then you have your East European Jews who are uh, white. and the accusation that Jimmy Carter has most famously made that Israel is an apartheid state is also laughable. Uh, you, you've got Arabs on the Supreme Court. Uh, you've got Arabs. Now, uh, I, I've got a quote in here by a Muslim writer, mm-hmm. um, Irshad Manji, and she went to Israel to, uh, to check out this accusation, is this an apartheid state? And she wrote, uh this upon her 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 departure uh, after she left at only 20 percent of the population would arabs even be eligible for election if they squirmed under the thumb of apartheid and they do run for office and arabs hold seats in the Knesset the right. um, the israeli parliament would an apartheid state extend voting rights to women and the poor in local in local elections which israel did for for the first time in the history of Palestinian Arabs. Uh, It's a fact, by the way, if you study uh, the politics of Israel, that Palestinians, and Palestinians will tell you this, have far, far, far more freedom to speak and to act as they want to speak and act within uh, the state of Israel than they do on the West Bank under the Palestinian Authority. We're speaking a word against the Palestinian um, authority can get them thrown in jail and beaten and perhaps make their family open to attacks.
1: Hmm. So uh, – and, and really the point being made there is, is an important one. It actually also applies, interestingly enough, to both sides of this conversation. We sometimes uh, – I think the guilt here is a generalization about who Jews are, and interestingly, sometimes we risk doing the same thing about Muslims. And assuming that they're all of the same kind, the same stripe, hold the same beliefs, and that's certainly not the case as well. And and in fact, it's the reality of those differences that actually provides some element of Possibility that there are groups that might be willing to talk to one another. You see that in the Arab world. You've already alluded to the fact that that Egypt and Jordan have recognized Israel, while other uh, Arab states have not. That kind of thing. So we know these kinds of distinctions can be made. But you know, sometimes these terms are thrown about injustice and racism in such a way to try and paint you know by a guilt by huge association. Uh, and try and color the conversation. I call it, uh, you know, it's soundbite debate, and Mm -hmm. soundbite debate generally doesn't help us very much because it almost always ignores the depths and the levels and the complexities of what it is that you're looking Mm at. The last uh, category that you talk about in the introductory chapter is the societal one, or at least that's the way I'm characterizing it. When you make the point Israel is not a theocracy, which Mm. may seem... Uh, strange to some people, but what point are you making there? Well, basically,
2: a theocracy is when the clerics rule the state, when your theologians make the decisions. Now, that's what you've got in Iran. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: You know, the mullahs run Iran. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not what you have in Israel. Uh, In fact, the uh, rabbis in Israel are often fighting with with uh, the decisions made by the state and vice versa, uh, if, if they were running things, uh, there wouldn't be such hostility as there often is between the rabbis and uh, uh, you know, the Netanyahu government and uh, decisions by the Knesset.
1: Yeah. In fact, the only time this tends to even come close to going in this direction is when the uh, the ability to build a majority in the country is determined by one or two votes, and it's the orthodox. Uh, parties that help complete that, and then they end up exercising some influence in government policy as a result. But that's not even that; it's not a full full theocracy because the power is actually held in the uh, in the range of elected officials that Israel uh, generates in their elections.
2: And plus, the word theocracy often suggests that only if you're in the favor of religion do you get full civil rights. Well, you know, uh, we have this full full chapter. By um, uh, um, our Aramaean leader friend Mm -hmm. who talks about the full rights he enjoys as a non-Jew.
1: Right. Right. And, then, and again, just to show that Israel isn't, you know, that there are things to criticize, there has been pressure in Israel in places to allow a more freedom uh, of religion expression to Christians and Christians' presence there. So we, this isn't perfect by any means, but it—but the point is it's far more open society, far more open uh, um uh, government and structure than, than certainly other parts of that part of the world.
2: Right, and Shadi Kolul, the man I was just talking about in his chapter, talks about some some uh, mistakes that the Israeli government has made toward the Aramean community. So uh, this book, once again, uh, you know, does allow for criticism of Israel.
1: So let's turn our attention to the to the back of the book and kind of where things end up. I've already alluded to a couple of things that that I highlighted in trying to pull all these pieces together. Uh, one being that Gentile inclusion doesn't mean Israelite exclusion in the plan of God. Another mm-hmm. being that uh, this really is about God's faithfulness. God made certain mm-hmm. commitments in His Word to specific groups of people, and even as he brought more people in, which he had also originally committed himself to because he said through hmm. Israel the world will be blessed, mm-hmm. um, that doesn't mean that the original recipients of these promises have been left behind. Uh, so that's an important uh, part of the uh, picture. We've highlighted another element that, that, that I highlighted as well, which is that this is not as nationalistic as some people portray it because it takes place theologically in a context of reconciliation that God is in the midst of performing as, as the core of his gospel. And so one of the Key phrases in the New Testament is that in Christ there is no Greek or Jew, no Gentile or Jew, and part of the point that that's making is not to wipe out the particularity of the two groups, but to say what holds them together, and at least what the gospel is about is is ultimately, and what salvation is about is ultimately bringing the nations of the world all together. Uh, before God, so that in Revelation four and five we see all the nations praising God in one voice and in in the way heavenly praise is is portrayed. And so, you know, Paul describes his own ministry as a ministry of reconciliation. and In Second Corinthians, that's about the rela- person's relationship to God. But in Ephesians two, that's about how God brings Jew and Gentile together in Christ, reinforcing the earlier point that Gentile inclusion doesn't mean Israelite exclusion at the same time. And so. Uh, so these are important theological themes. This is not about a nationalism that says Israel, you know, I'm going to use the German phrase Israel uber alles. You know, uh, it, it's about it, it's about a commitment that in which everyone shares in the benefits that God has given to people, and that's ultimately what the eschatology of the Bible is looking forward to. So that means justice is cared about on all sides um and it also mean means that uh, that we need to have a, a a good non-discriminatory conversation when issues of justice are applied to the region if uh, we're going to complain about how Israel treats Palestinians we also have to be willing to talk about how sometimes Palestinians mistreat Jews and uh, elements like the and things like that come into those kinds of conversations it seems to me. So that's – and then I made a point about how to, how to get the word out about these kinds of uh, views in terms of conferences and media uh, efforts like the one we're having right now, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. So that's, mm-hmm. that's what that chapter was about. And then you came along with your conclusion and highlighted um, what this means for theology What this means for historical theology, and by theology I mean the reading of the Bible, exegesis. Uh, What this means for historical theology. What this means for systematic theology, and so I'm going to let you kind of pick those off one at a time.
2: Well, um, you know, uh, you know, perhaps a good way to to go through those is for me to uh, state five propositions I make at the end. Okay. Good. Uh, First is that Israel shows us who we are and who God is. Mm -hmm. Uh, She shows us who we are before God at both our best and our worst. For Israel demonstrates God's creation of human beings with capacity to trust in him and the human predilection to reject God. Two, sacred history is not over. As Jean Cardinal Donnie Lou once observed, the biblical prophecy is the announcement of the fact that at the end of time, God will accomplish works still greater than in the past. Now, that's important because for a lot of Christians today, outside of these circles, uh, there is nothing really to look forward to except the end of the world. Right. And nothing particularly Christian or Jewish is going to happen then. Right, But if at least a part of what we're saying in this book is true, it means we can expect that in the latter days, the unfolding of sacred history is going to continue. Then number three, eschatological fulfillment is both revealed and hidden. And a lot of your listeners probably know that Luther is famous for his saying that God and Jesus Christ is both revealed and hidden. And Bart made that a major theme of his church dogmatics. So the point that I take away from that is that much of eschatology is wrapped up in mystery. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a Scripture clearly teaches, for example, that God chose Israel— but it never explains why Israel was chosen. And so that, the emergence of modern Israel is a fulfillment of prophecy seems plain, but how it's all going to work out and how it's working out now is a mystery that we must leave most of the details um, to God. And then number four, this fulfillment is not its final stage. We can't know the unfolding of the end times with any precision, but we can know that this stage of fulfillment is not is probably not the final one
1: and we know some general outlines was we know who the winner Victor's going to be and that kind of thing uh, the, the the way right. in which uh, the way this is going to resolve itself uh, one more we got just a touch of time so okay mm-hmm. yeah so finally
2: that Israel and the church are integrally joined we're joined at the hip as it were um, you know this is another example of the scandal of particularities that that God works through particular people, and particularly a particular Israelite named Jesus, and to reach the world through that particular people and that particular person. So just as he did thousands of years ago, God comes to the world universally through a particular people and a particular land. He's done that for millennia, and our book says he continues to do that today.
1: Well, thank you, Gerald, for coming in and explaining the New Christian Zionism and introducing us to this book. It's been a um, enlightening uh, conversation. I hope it's been beneficial to you. We thank you for joining us at the table, and we hope to see you again soon.
0: Thanks for listening to the Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu/the table. Dallas Theological Seminary, teach truth, love well.